Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 77. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. This podcast is brought to you by Crack Pack, the ready-to-use crack filler. Does your street have a deep pothole? Does air leak into your house around doors and windows? Your kid launched a ball through your picture window? No problem. When you have a gap, use Crack Pack. Even works on your plumber. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to our podcast. Number 77 has a little humor for you, some historical fantasy, and thoughts about children. Along with Chapter 28 from Treasure Island and the end of Chapter 23 in Winds of Wyoming. I hope you're having a good summer. We've camped a couple times and visited a couple hot springs. In case you didn't know, hot springs abound in Idaho. Come on over and enjoy them. Next month, we celebrate 43 years of marriage and we'll head off to parts unknown to explore more of the beautiful northwest corner of our country. Now, here's Steve with Treasure Island. For Treasure Island, I'll start at the end of 27 and slide into chapter 28. I had no time left to recover. At the sharp, clipping tone of the parrot, the sleepers awoke and sprang up, and with a mighty oath, the voice of Silver cried, Who goes? I turned to run, struck violently against one person, recoiled, and ran full into the arms of a second, who, for his part, closed upon and held me tight. Bring a torch, Dick, said Silver, when my capture was thus assured. And one of the men left the log house and presently returned with a lighted brand. In the Enemy's Camp The red glare of the torch lighting up the interior of the blockhouse showed me the worst of my apprehensions realized. The pirates were in possession of the house and stores. There was the cask of Cognac, There were the pork and bread, as before, and what tenfold increased my horror, not a sign of any prisoner. I could only judge that all had perished, and my heart smote me sorely that I had not been there to perish with them. There were six of the buccaneers, all told. Not another man was left alive. Five of them were on their feet, flushed and swollen, suddenly called out of the first sleep of drunkenness. The sixth had only risen upon his elbow. He was deadly pale, and the blood-stained bandage around his head told that he had recently been wounded, and still more recently dressed. I remembered the man who had been shot and run back among the woods in the great attack, and doubted not that this was he. The parrot sat, preening her plumage, on Long John's shoulder. He himself, I thought, looked somewhat paler and more stern than I was used to, He still wore the fine broadcloth suit in which he had fulfilled his mission, but it was bitterly the worse for wear, 
daubed with clay and torn with the sharp briars of the wood. So, said he, here's Jim Hawkins, shiver my timbers, dropped in like, eh? Well, come, I take that friendly. And thereupon he sat down across the brandy cask and began to fill a pipe. Give me a loan of the link, Dick, said he. And then, when he had a good light, that'll do, lad, he added. Stick the glim in the wood heap, and you gentlemen bring yourselves too. You needn't stand up for Mr. Hawkins. He'll excuse you. You may lay to that. And so, Jim, stopping the tobacco, here you were, and quite a pleasant surprise for poor old John. I see you were smart when first I set my eyes on you, but this here gets away from me clean at due. To all this, as may be well supposed, I made no answer. They had set me with my back against the wall, and I stood there, looking silver in the face, pluckily enough, I hope, to all outward appearance, but with black despair in my heart. Silver took a whiff or two of his pipe with great composure, and then ran on again. Now you see, Jim, so be as you are here, says he, I'll give you a piece of my mind. I've always liked you, I have, for a lad of spirit and the picture of my own self when I was young and handsome. I always wanted you to jine and take your share and die a gentleman, and now you've got to. Captain Smollett's a fine seaman, as I'll own up to any day. But stiff on discipline. Duty is duty, says he, and right he is. Just you keep clear of the cap'n. The doctor himself is gone dead again, you. Ungrateful scamp, was what he said. And the short and the long of the whole story is about here. You can't go back to your own lot, for they won't have you. And without you... Start a third ship's company all by yourself, which might be lonely. You'll have to join with Captain Silver. So far, so good. My friends, then, were still alive. And though I partly believe the truth of Silver's statement, that the cabin party were incensed at me for my desertion, I was more relieved than distressed by what I heard. I don't say nothing as to your being in our hands, continued Silver. Though there you are and you may lay to it. I'm all for argument. I've never seen good come out of threatening. If you like the service, well, you'll join. And if you don't, Jim, well, you're free to answer no. Free and welcome, shipmate. And if fair can be said by mortal seamen, shiver my sides. Am I to answer then? I asked with a very tremulous voice. Through all this sneering talk, I was made to feel the threat of death that overhung me, and my cheeks burned and my heart beat painfully in my breast. Lad, said Silver, no one's oppressing of you. Take your bearings. None of us won't hurry you, mate. Time goes so pleasant in your company, you see. Well, says I, growing a bit bolder, if I'm to choose, I declare I have a right to know what's what and why you're here, and where my friends are. What's what? repeated one of the buccaneers in a deep growl. Ah, uh, he'd be a lucky one, as knowed that. You'll perhaps batten down your hatches till you're spoke to, my friend, cried Silver truculently to this speaker. And then, in his first gracious tones, he replied to me. Yesterday morning, Mr. Hawkins, said he, in the dog watch, 
down came Dr. Livesey with a flag of truce. Says he, Captain Silver, you're sold out. Ship's gone. Well, maybe we've been taking a glass and a song to help it round. I won't say no. Leastways, none of us had looked out. We looked out and by thunder, the old ship was gone. I never seen a pack of fools look fishier. And you may lay to that if I tells you that looked the fishiest. Well, says the doctor, let's bargain. We bargained, him and I, and here we are. Stores, brandy, blockhouse, the firewood you was thoughtful enough to cut, and, in a manner of speaking, the whole blessed boat from Cross Trees to Keelson. As for them, they're tramped. I don't know where's they are. He drew again quietly at his pipe. And lest you should take it into that head of yours, he went on, that you was included in the treaty, here's the last word that was said. How many are you, says I, to leave? Four, says he, four and one of us wounded. As for that boy, I don't know where he is. Confound him, says he, nor I don't much care. We're about sick of him. These was his words. Is that all? I asked. Well, that's all you're going to hear, my son, returned Silver. And now am I to choose? And now you are to choose, and you may lay to that, said Silver. Well, said I, I am not such a fool, but I know pretty well what I have to look for. Let the worst come to the worst. It's little I care. I've seen too many die since I fell in with you. But there's a thing or two I have to tell you, I said, and by this time I was quite excited. And the first is this. Here you are in a bad way. Ship lost, treasure lost, man lost, your whole business gone to wreck. And if you want to know who did it, it was I. I was in the apple barrel the night we sighted land. And I heard you, John, and you, Dick Johnson, and Hans, who was now at the bottom of the sea, and told every word you said before the hour was out. And as for the schooner, it was I who cut her cable, and it was I that killed the men you had aboard of her, and it was I who brought her where you'll never see her more. Not one of you. The laugh's on my side. I've had the top of this business from the first. I no more fear you than I fear a fly. Kill me, if you please, or spare me. But one thing I'll say, and no more. If you spare me, bygones are bygones. And when you fellows are in court for piracy, I'll save you all I can. It is for you to choose. Kill another, and you do yourselves no good. Or spare me and keep a witness to save you from the gallows. I stopped, for, I tell you, I was out of breath. And to my wonder, not a man of them moved but all sat staring at me like as many sheep. And while they were still staring, I broke out again. And now, Mr. Silver, I said, I believe you're the best man here, and if things go to the worst, I'll take it kind of you to let the doctor know the way I took it. I'll bear it in mind, said Silver, with an accent so curious that I could not, for the life of me, decide whether he were laughing at my request or had been favorably affected by my courage. I'll put one to that, cried the old mahogany-faced seaman, Morgan by name, whom I had seen in Long John's public house upon the quays of Bristol. It was him that knowed Black Dog. 
Well, and see here, added the sea cook, I'll put another again to that, by thunder, for it was this same boy that faked the chart from Billy Bones. First and last, we've split upon Jim Hawkins. Then here goes, said Morgan, with an oath, and he sprang up, drawing his knife as if he had been twenty. Avast there, cried Silver. Who are you, Tom Morgan? Maybe you thought you was cap'n here, perhaps. By the powers, but I'll teach you better. Cross me and you'll go where many a good man's gone before you, first and last, these thirty year back, some to the yard-arm, shiver my timbers, and some by the board, and all to feed the fishes. There's never a man looked me between the eyes and seen a good day afterwards, Tom Morgan. You may lay to that. Morgan paused, but a hoarse murmur rose from the others. Tom's right, said one. I stood hazing long enough from one, added another. I'll be hanged if I'll be hazed by you, John Silver. Did any of you gentlemen want to have it out with me? roared Silver, bending far forward from his position on the keg, with his pipe still glowing in his right hand. Put a name on what you're at. You ain't dumb, I reckon. Him that wants shall get it. Have I lived this many years, and a son of a rum punchin cock his hat athward my hoss at the latter end of it? You know the way. You're all gentlemen of fortune by your account. Well, I'm ready. Take a cutlass, him that dares, and I'll see the color of his inside, crutch and all, before that pipe's empty. Not a man stirred. Not a man answered. That's your sort, is it? He added, returning his pipe to his mouth. Well, you're a gay lot to look at anyway. Not much worth to fight, you ain't. Perhaps you can understand King George's English. I'm capping here by lection. I'm capping here because I'm the best man by a long sea mile. You won't fight as gentlemen of fortune should. Then by thunder you'll obey, and you may lay to it. I like that boy now. I never seen a better boy than that. He's more a man than any pair of rats of you in this here house. And what I say is this. Let me see him that'll lay a hand on him. That's what I say, and you may lay to it. There was a long pause after this. I stood straight up against the wall, my heart still going like a sledgehammer, but with a ray of hope now shining in my bosom. Silver leant back against the wall, his arms crossed, his pipe in the corner of his mouth, as calm as though he had been in church. Yet his eye kept wandering furtively, and he kept the tail of it on his unruly followers. They, on their part, drew gradually together towards the far end of the blockhouse, and the low hiss of their whispering sounded in my ear continuously like a stream. One after another, they would look up, and the red light of the torch would fall for a second on their nervous faces. But it was not towards me. It was towards Silver that they turned their eyes. "'You seem to have a lot to say,' remarked Silver, spitting far into the air. Pipe up and let me hear it, or lay to. Ax your pardon, sir, returned one of the men. You're pretty free with some of the rules. Maybe you'll kindly keep an eye upon the rest. This crew's dissatisfied. This crew don't valley bullying a marlin spike. This crew has its rights like other crews. I'll make so free as that. And by your own rules, I take it we can talk together. I ax your pardon, sir, acknowledging you for to be captain at this present, 
but I claim my right and steps outside for a council. And with an elaborate sea salute, this fellow, a long, ill-looking, yellow-eyed man of five and thirty, stepped coolly towards the door and disappeared out of the house. One after another, the rest followed his example, each making a salute as he passed, each adding some apology. According to rules, said one. Focasle council, said Morgan. And so with one remark or another, all marched out and left Silver and me alone with the torch. The sea cook instantly removed his pipe. Now look you here, Jim Hawkins, he said in a steady whisper that was no more than audible. You're within half a plank of death, and what's a long sight worse, of torture. They're going to throw me off. But you mark, I stand by you through thick and thin. I didn't mean to, no, not till you spoke up. I was about desperate to lose that much blunt and be hanged into the bargain. But I see you was the right sort. I says to myself, you stand by Hawkins, John, and Hawkins will stand by you. You're his last card, and by the living thunder, John, he's yours. Back to back, says I, you save your witness, and he'll save your neck. I began dimly to understand. You mean all's lost? I asked. Aye, by gum, I do, he answered. Ship gone, neck gone. That's the size of it. Once I looked into that bay, Jim Hawkins, and seen no schooner, well, I'm tough, but I gave out. As for that lot and their council, mark me, they're outright fools and cowards. I'll save your life, if so be as I can from them. But see here, Jim, tit for tat, you saved Long John from swinging. I was bewildered. It seemed a thing so hopeless, he was asking. He, the old buccaneer, the ringleader throughout. What I can do, that I'll do, I said. It's a bargain, cried Long John. You speak up, plucky, and by thunder I've a chance. He hobbled to the torch where it stood propped among the firewood and took a fresh light to his pipe. Understand me, Jim, he said, returning. I've a head on my shoulders, I have. I'm on Squire's side now. I know you've got that ship safe somewheres. How you done it, I don't know, but safe it is. I guess Hans and O'Brien turned soft. I never much believed in neither of them. Now you mark me. I ask no questions, nor I won't let others. I know when a game's up, I do, and I know a lad that's staunch. Ah, you that's young, you and me might have done a power of good together. He drew some cognac from the cask into a tin canakin. Will you taste, messmate? he asked. And when I had refused, well, I'll take a drain myself, Jim, said he. I need a caulker, for there's trouble on hand. And talking of trouble, why did that doctor give me the chart, Jim? My face expressed a wonder so unaffected that he saw the needlessness of further questions. Ah, uh, well, he did, though, said he. And there's something under that, no doubt. Something surely under that, Jim, bad or good. And he took another swallow of the brandy, shaking his great fair head like a man who looks forward to the worst.
Before I read the last half of chapter 23 of Winds of Wyoming, I'd like to announce that I'm currently revising Winds of Wyoming. It's been probably five or six years since that book was published, and I'm just making some needed changes. But in the meantime, I'll be reading from the old version. We'll be sure to let you know when the revised version is available. Mike saw Clint's truck parked at the top of the hill and Clint leaning against the fender. He was drinking from a plastic water bottle. When Mike got out of his truck, Clint tossed him a bottle. Thanks, Mike said, just what I needed. See anything out of the ordinary? Nope, everything looks good. Fence is fine, the current is flowing. How about you? No holes, thank God, and the grass looks great this year. Yeah, Clint said, all that snow really helped. Mike removed the cap and swallowed some water. Reminds me. Thanks for taking care of the ruts in that boulder on the road. Didn't take as much time as I thought it would, Clint said. We need to fence a new pasture soon. Mike took a drink. Can't allow the herd to overgraze. Buffalo with plenty of water and food and room to roam were the easiest to control. Building fences made him think of Cyrus, who relished the challenge of setting posts in a straight line and pulling the wire taut. What in the world had happened to him? Would he ever return to Copperville? Thank God Manuel's mom had agreed to help Fletcher in the kitchen. She was a great cook. They watched the bison chomp at the grass. A flock of crows hopped about the pasture, flapping their wings and cawing. The buffalo either hadn't noticed their presence or chose to ignore them. Mike leaned back, popping his spine. Better head in for lunch. I hear Marita's fixing tacos today. Clint folded his arms. Before we go, there's something I've been meaning to ask you. Shoot. It's about Kate Nielsen. Mike raised an eyebrow. She seems to have disappeared. Disappeared? Yeah, Clint said. I saw her once in the hospital, but the next time I went to see her, she'd been released, and the nurses couldn't or wouldn't tell me where she went. Mike didn't respond. Her cabin is empty, and all her stuff is in her car, which is parked in front of your house. You and your mom must know where she is. Mike spread his hands. Um, what could he say? Kate wanted him to tell people she was at a convalescent home, but that's where they sent senior citizens. Clint would never buy that line. Or if he did, he'd want to know where the, to find the place. He couldn't tell him she'd asked Dimple to box up her things and put them in her car so the cabin would be available for guests. That would send him directly to Dimple's house. She's... Mike dropped his hands. She's fine. Clint's face darkened. If you think because you took her horseback riding once you have sole dibs on dating Kate Nielsen, think again. She and I spent time together. We had plans, things we wanted to do this summer. Now, I don't even have a telephone number for her, let alone an address where I can find her. You could at least give me your number so I can call her. Mike opened his mouth, but no words came. He rubbed his chin. Uh, I'm not at liberty to reveal her whereabouts. Clint scowled. Not at liberty to reveal her whereabouts? La-di-da. Who do you think you're kidding, Duncan? He jerked open the door of his pickup and jumped in. The engine roared to life. Clint, wait. Forget it. I'll find her without your help. 
Clint slammed the truck into gear and charged down the hill through a half-dried puddle. Mud sprayed behind the vehicle. Mike slumped against his truck. He should have worded things differently. Clint rarely got mad, but when he did... He opened the passenger door and squirmed under the steering wheel, remembering the day Kate first rode with him in Old Blue. Even then, he thought he felt sparks between the two of them. He turned the key to start the truck. Was Clint exaggerating, or did he and Kate really have plans? He hadn't noticed them hanging around together, and she hadn't said anything about the two of them. But that didn't mean much. Almost every day he learned something new about Kate Nielsen, usually something he didn't want to know. Maybe he'd gotten the cart before the horse by falling for her, before he had a clue who she was. Kate stared at the computer screen. She should have called Amy from the hospital. The voices inside the house were coming her way. She clicked out of Facebook, turned the computer off, and closed it just as Bernard opened the patio screen and stepped onto the patio. He held up a cell phone. This yours? She nodded. Battery's dead. Where's your charger? She hesitated, realizing that as soon as he charged the phone, he'd hear Amy's messages. In my car, at the Whispering Pines. Dimple had retrieved the phone for her, but not the charger. Deputy Ramirez, who with Dimple had followed Bernard out of the house, asked if the computer belonged to her. This is Dimple's. He turned to Dimple. We'll have to confiscate your laptop, ma'am. It may contain important evidence. Mike took his time driving back to the house. The way the day was going, he might as well call Marshall Thompson and get it over with. But what should he say? Should he act ignorant and innocent? After all, he never saw the ferret. Or should he confess he knew about it and possibly end up in prison for concealing federal evidence? Actually, he hadn't concealed anything. He just hadn't reported that a ferret had been found on WP property. He rubbed his chin. Like Dad always said, honesty was the best policy. But... Marshall Thompson answered on the first ring. Mike cleared his throat. Hi, Marshall. This is Mike Duncan. I'm calling about the... Glad you called, Duncan. I've been wanting to talk to you. Can I put you on hold for a minute? I have someone in my office, and I need to ask him something before he leaves. Sure. I'll be right back. Mike tapped the desk, glad he was alone in the office. He was tempted to hang up, but he knew he had to finish what he started. Well, what someone started. Manuel with his animal abuse history? Or Daryl with his bad attitude? Maybe Cyrus with... Well... Cyrus being Cyrus. Or Kate with... Marshall came back on the line. Still there? Mike took a breath. I'm here. Sorry about the wait. I closed my office door, so we shouldn't have any interruptions. Mike cringed. This was sounding serious. My dad says he's ready for me to take charge of the family ranch. Marshall sounded excited. I've been thinking about starting a bison herd and wondered if you'd be willing to sell some cows. And a bull, if you can spare one. Plus, I'd pay you to teach me everything you know about buffalo. Mike's jaw dropped. Prepared only to negotiate the dangerous terrain of black-footed ferrets, he had no response. He stared out the window, attempting to switch gears. Truth was, he secretly enjoyed being the only bison producer in the area. Did he want to share that distinction? On the other hand, 
Marshall's herd would come from his stock and therefore enhance the WP's reputation as a quality producer. That is, if Marshall cared for his animals properly. And WP bulls would probably do stud service, at least at first, because he didn't want to sell any of them quite yet. That could bring in extra cash and ensure quality calves. He pursed his lips. It would be less painful to sell his animals than watch guests shoot them. That would make Kate happy. He frowned. What he did with his bison was his concern, not hers. I'll read from Roger Pond's book, Take the Kids Fishing, They're Better Than Worms. This chapter is The Outhouse Was Cheaper. A recent piece in the travel news reminded me of how much we take for granted. The news report says the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. has installed a new quiet room in the hotel fitness center that can be rented for $30 per hour. The quiet room is a soundproof, dimly lit, securely locked, 10 by 12 foot space furnished only with a leather massage recliner, an audio-visual system to pipe in the sounds of waves, forest noises, or bird calls, and a small refrigerator. That's it, the story says. The point of such a room is quiet and solitude. No phones, no interruptions, and no couples. Can you imagine the desk clerk asking folks like me if we want to rent the quiet room for $30 an hour? Oh, heck no. The noisiest room you've got will be fine for me. It's hard for most of us to imagine getting so stressed out we would pay $30 an hour for some peace and quiet. Many readers will recall we got all that for free when everybody had an outhouse. The outhouse was our quiet room when I was a kid. No phones, no fax. And no interruptions, you hoped. Nobody ever spent an hour in the outhouse, of course, unless they had chores to do or were hiding from someone. The old outhouses had just about everything the Four Seasons quiet room has. The walls were thin, so forest noises and bird calls were never far away. If your privy was near a creek, as many were, there was the sound of mountain water in the background. When the sound of water increased, we knew the creek was coming up and quiet time should be coming to a close. We had farm noises, too. There were cows mooing, roosters crowing, and tractors starting up. I don't know if the Four Seasons has those sounds in their quiet room, but they should have. It would make a lot of folks feel right at home. Some of the world's great decisions were made in an outhouse. That's where Abe Lincoln decided to run for president. Teddy Roosevelt drew maps of the national parks, and General MacArthur vowed he might return if he ever got the chance. All that changed when health departments started making folks put their bathrooms in the house. Now we've got people spending $30 an hour looking for some peace and quiet. Nowadays, the majority of the population wouldn't know an outhouse from a tool shed. I don't know what folks would pay for the privilege of sitting in an outhouse, but $30 an hour might be stretching it a little. Sometimes when I hear folks griping about global warming, methane gas, and environmental degradation, I wonder if they ever saw an outhouse. A couple of hours in one of these little buildings would surely make the outside world look a whole lot better.
author Serenity Orr just added another novel to her Ancient World historical fantasy series. Her latest release about a young woman whose destiny was to become the leader of her tribe is titled Finding Zarina. Here's an excerpt. Finding Zarina. A beginning. I dream a dream that leaves me breathless, a dream that vanishes as soon as my eyes fly open. Scanning the tree branches high overhead, I try to remember why my heart races, why I feel dread in the pit of my stomach. But I cannot. I listen to the sounds of the forest, the early morning sounds. The breeze rustles the leaves, the flyers chirp loving notes to one another, and the bushy tails scurry across branches. Maruk breathes rhythmically next to me, deeply in and out. I snuggle in closer, turning toward him, burying my face into his chest, breathing in his scent, his wild, free scent. My quickening pulse begins to slow, and the ache in the pit of my stomach dissolves as I rest in the assurance of my man's presence, of his love. Last night we stole away, off into the forest for a night of solitude. We left our responsibilities, our people, to themselves. The night alone together was wondrous, despite my injured ribs. A full moon has not yet passed since my fall, and my ribs are healing well. I can walk with the aid of my staff, but I cannot yet run, and I long to run. Soon, I tell myself, soon I shall not only run, but fly again. My entire life, up until a moon ago, was dictated to me. As the heir to the chief, I was taught to be a man. Against my wishes, my desires, I was forced to train with the men, to hunt with them, and when my father died, I was made chief. But no more. Now I am free. I am Maruk's, and he is mine. Against my cheek I feel Maruk's chest fill with air as he breathes in. He begins to awaken. His lean arms tighten around me, gently pulling me closer. I tilt my chin up and stare into his bright blue eyes. They are the color of the remembering flowers that grow in our valley, the color of the blue skies of Zarina. Zarina, so many that I love are there, in the land of the Mighty One, the Great Father, my mother, my father, my grandmother. So many that I love have gone on before me to that land. Grandmother used to tell me that in Zarina we would finally find peace and contentment that it is the only place where you can find them. And if that is true, then here in Maruk's arms I have found Zarina on earth. A piece of the Mighty One's land is afforded to me in the arms of my man. Content to stay here to enjoy the warmth given to me by him in the early light, I close my eyes. I feel him place a warm kiss on my forehead. Sierra, Sierra, my love, it is morning. We must, he runs his calloused hand down my arm, over my shiny yellow cuff, a sign of my past. We must join the others. He finds my strong hand. I feel him run his thumb across the raised, jagged scars, tokens of a fight with a blade-toothed cat. Just a little while longer, I mumble. I want to keep this moment. I want to carve it into my memory. For as soon as we rejoin the others, we will begin our journey to a new home a land none of us has ever seen. None, save our guide, a flame-haired giant named Valder. He is not of our people, 
He is a stranger who will guide us into a strange land and to our new lives. Of my people, only six remain. Nearly two months ago, 19 entrusted their lives to me on this journey. Now, less than half live. Only two families, Maruk, Kegels, and I, Pire, his woman Korak, and her sister Sank. We have escaped the fate of the others. How much changes in so little time. Piri stood with Korak and Sank as they watched the earth swallow the others, along with all our camp. Maruk, Giggles, and I were separated from them. In our attempt to rejoin them, I fell from a cliff, injuring my ribs and ending our journey for a time. We found refuge in a small cave. There, I relinquished my father's dreams for me. I chose to be a woman, Maruk's woman. In that cave, we became a new people. Kim, my wolf, eventually found her way to me. Pire, Korak, and Sank joined us, and we met our guide. I had lost so much, but the Mighty One did not leave me empty. I breathe in my man's scent and focus on what I still have. Although I went to stay here wrapped in Maruk's arms, held next to his heart, I know that soon we must journey. He runs his fingers up my spine, causing chill bumps to rise on my flesh. Reflexively, my muscles tighten and a dull ache throbs outward from my ribs. I had been able to push down the pain in the night because of the happiness I felt, but this morning the ache causes me to wince. Are you sore? He rubs a hand through my tangled mane of ebony hair. My ribs protest the night. I gaze into his eyes. For a moment we stay still. As though he listens to something or someone, he lifts his head and tilts his ear skyward, and then he pulls away from me, preparing to sit up. I don't want to leave. Please, mighty one, just a few moments more. I hear the sky rumble. Lie back, I say, smiling. It is going to rain. He looks up at the sky and then down at me, propping himself up on his elbow. I don't mind the rain, he says, as a lopsided grin spreads across his finely chiseled face and neither do you. But I no longer have my jacket. I try to reason him into spending a few last moments with me. I roll onto my back and trace my finger on his bare chest. Just a few moments longer. As though the mighty one agrees with me, a great clap of thunder rattles through the gray sky, and rain begins to pour from the clouds. The cool rain beats down on us. Maruk lifts his chin to the sky and smiles. Very well. He looks at me, but only until the rain stops. I smile as he bends down. What if the chief bids you to stay longer? I ask before he kisses me. A mischievous light dances in his eyes. What chief? He kisses me. My heart races, running free. I have never felt such joy. He deepens the kiss. I ignore my stiffness and lose myself in my man. He pulls away from me slightly. I try to follow him, but my sore ribs won't allow it. The kiss is broken. He stares down at me. Rain drips around him. His eyes take in every feature of my face. My eyes, my nose, my chin, my mouth. I wonder if he is pleased at what he sees. Am I beautiful to him? I never believed the Mighty One would give me such a gift. His voice is full of emotion. I did not believe the wolf boy would become the most blessed of men. I smile. I only dreamed of a moment like this. Like what? 
I knew what the elders wanted for me, to join with Balak. If that had been my fate, there would not have been such love in my heart. You did not love Balak? He sounds incredulous. I stare up at him, amazed that after all we have been through, he could still be uncertain of my love for him, still jealous of a vapor. Balak was the best of the hunters. He had been meant for me, intended for me when I had no choice. Balak and I are too much alike. It would not have been a good match. No. Doubt flickers in his eyes, a flashing flame. You are my other self, I say. I never wanted anyone but you. I never loved anyone but you. He leans in to kiss me. I feel him lift our covering up over our heads. We burrow under the skin in our small tent of protection. The rain beats out a rhythm as we kiss. If only my journey could stop here with me tucked close to his heart. But I know this is not the end. It is the beginning. This is a short chapter from the book A Burden Shared by David Roper. It's called The Little Ones. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. That's Luke 18. I wandered into the boys' restroom on the back hall the other day. I'm seldom in that part of our building during the school day since the place is normally overrun with little children. I peeked into the boys' room and spied a tearful youngster standing in the middle of the floor, holding up his trousers with both hands. Hi, I said, trying to be jovial. What's up? It was the wrong question to ask, or the wrong way to ask it. His reaction was to look even more desperate. What's the matter? I tried again. Are you having a hard time with school? Yes, he sobbed. Why? I asked. "'Cause I can't get my pants snapped,' he wailed. I came to his rescue and sent him on his way. Suddenly everything seemed much better for me as well as for him. The incident set me to thinking about little children, how easily their needs can be met, how tragic it is when we adults fail to meet them. It's the little things that count, listening to them while they chatter, looking intently into their eyes when we speak, affirming their value and worth, correcting them gently when they err, showering them with kindness, assuring them that we care, calming them with tenderness and touch, and most of all, giving them something other than E.T. to hold on to, showing them the glorious attractiveness of Jesus and helping them on to God. Children are wonderfully credulous. Jesus said they were. He referred to the street urchins of his day, who constantly pestered him and annoyed his disciples, as these little ones who believe in me. He corrected his older followers for trying to shoo them away and recommended to his disciples that they grow up and become like children in childlike faith. In fact, according to Jesus, we must all become like children if we plan to enter the kingdom of heaven. We should, as someone observed, get over our childish fears, including our fear of being childish. Time and misfortune make cynics of us, but little children just naturally believe. They often grasp the deep things of God's Word, even though those mysteries are so deep that not even an adult can fathom them fully. As one early Christian observed, the Bible is a river in which little lambs can wade, while elephants flounder. 
childhood decides it's the season of the soul, the prime time to plant for a lifetime. What a privilege we have to share in the growing of a child. And we are going to end with David Roper. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.